Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, where do you stand on giant snakes? Where do I stand on? Not near the head. That's right. That's, that's the worst place to stand. Yeah. What about you? Um, I've, I've always loved them. Um, you know, because I think probably from like an early age seeing... Uh, the snake in Jungle Book trying mm-hmm. to eat Mowgli. Um, you can't help but be fascinated with the, the, the seductive power of, uh, of any kind of serpent, right? And then the possibility that it can swallow you whole and, it, and just how inhuman the creature is. No arms or legs, just slithering around. That's funny you bring up uh, Jungle Book because uh, related, Ricky Tiki Tavi, ah. Nag and Nagaina... Some of my favorites in, in fiction there. Uh, but also the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad from Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which was more like the human embodiment of snakes. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly just the symbolic power of, of snakes throughout uh, human history uh, can't be denied. But uh, and because they, they end up representing so much. You have, like, uh, your cosmic world serpents in so many different uh, cultures, the idea that there's some gigantic primal snake that plays into the creation and or destruction of the world. Ouroboros. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which we uh, we did uh, an entire episode on, which I'll, I'll include a link to that on the, the landing page for this episode. But uh, but even in uh, popular culture, um, modern pop culture, we see giant snakes continue to pop up. We we, we can't help but be uh, fascinated by the, uh, the, you know, the struggle between, say, Conan the Barbarian and a giant snake. In uh, in Tulsa Doom's dungeon, uh, that was certainly one I always enjoyed uh, watching. Up, uh, watch- that's certainly one I always enjoyed uh, watching as I was growing up. Um, or then, of course, there's a 1997's Anaconda, in which a uh, half-digested uh, John Voight falls out of the uh, monster serpent. Uh, there's also Beetlejuice. Oh yes, with the the, the sandwormy creatures. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, Michael Keaton turns into a snake, a giant snake, oh, on the banister. Yeah. But yes, at the end of the movie. Or near the end, he's mm-hmm. consumed by the sandworm. Yeah. And I think uh, Freddy Krueger also uh, turned into a, like a big snake and ate oh, uh, yeah. one of the victims in three or four. I can't remember. Dream Warriors, maybe. And in terms of mythology, too, you'll see that Grutzlang is an Afrikaans word meaning great snake. And by the way, this is from the Mental Floss article, 11 Legendary Monsters of Africa. And the monster of that name, Grutzlang, lives in a cave called the Wonder Hole in an uh, area of South Africa. And the story is that the original Grutzlang was found to be too powerful. So the gods subdivided the animal into two species, the elephant and the snake. Ah. Yeah. Uh, however, Grutzlang, uh, or two, escaped in, we'd have to have two, right? And uh, they reproduced. So that's uh, the idea of this, and that this monster could grow up to 60 feet long. And supposedly, its cave is full of diamonds, but nobody knows for sure because Groot Song is guarding it. Yeah, who's gonna? the only way you're going to wind up in that cave, I guess, is if you, you pass through the other side of the snake. Well, and what I love about this is that the, there's this idea that I have in my mind, this romantic notion of back in the day, everybody sitting around the fire and talking about Groot Song, this giant snake growing to 60 feet long. <laughs> Indeed. So tall tales of, uh, of of what snakes can consist of and how big they can get. Yeah, getting to the heart of our question today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. What is the largest snake that has ever 
existed. So obviously, by the way we phrase this question, there are kind of two areas we're going to explore. The first question being, what's the largest snake alive today? Mm-hmm. Which, as you'll explore, is a, a little more complicated of, of a question uh, than you might think. And then, what is the largest snake that has ever lived, taking into account the, the fossil record and what we know about uh, large serpents in uh, prehistoric times? And, you know, what do you mean by large? Do you mean weight or length? That's right. So uh, two that meet this criteria, which you could call the largest snakes in the world presently living, are the reticulated python and the green anaconda. And in both the cases, we are definitely talking about the females of the species because the females are larger in both the reticulated python and the green anaconda. Now, it's worth noting that on March 6th of this year, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared the reticulated python and the green anaconda as two of four injurious wildlife species and will prohibit import of the snakes into the U.S. and its territories as well as transport across state lines. Uh, this is because not only are these, these two snakes uh, some of the largest living snakes, they are also traded commercially as pets. And what that means is that sometimes these really powerful snakes have been intentionally released into the wild while others will escape enclosures. And so if you look at Florida, for instance, where you've <laughs> seen the Burmese python mm-hmm. taking over parts of uh, Florida, you'll see that the native wildlife is really at risk because... These snakes, their size and their strength, they make a, they make them apex predators in the environments that they're already indigenous to, but put them in one where there are lesser predators around and you can see how they would run rampant. And to just give you an idea of the kind of strength that they're sporting here, I'm going to turn to this account by Todd Mexico writing for animaldiversity.org. He says, um, with reticulated pythons, if the antlers, because they go after ungulates, Mm -hmm. are small enough, they are simply ingested and digested. However, if the antlers are too large on the animal it's trying to take down, the snake can actually break them back to lie alongside the body and then consume them. Um, And he says that sometimes, very rarely, that the snake, the reticulated python, actually swallows the hindquarters. And then when it works its way to the antlers... It stops and it allows its digestive acids to break down the animal's flesh until the antlers actually become weak and drop off. Essentially decapitating the creature with your own digestive fluids. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That's just such a wonderful, grotesque thing. I mean, that's the reason, uh, you know, you you can't help but but love these giant serpents, you know, particularly the constrictors. Yeah, it's grisly stuff. And, And yes, you're attracted but also repulsed by them. Yeah, I mean, even when you go to the pet store, it's like you don't really want to see the cute little mouse eaten by the snake, but you can't look away. Either. I was about to say, <laughs> and yet you probably don't look away. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's, let's look at the, these two species in a little more detail. Uh, first, we have the Asian reticulated python, Python reticulatus, uh, so-called for the uh, geometric color pattern on its body. Uh, they thrive in steamy tropical rainforests throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, they need water, and they need uh, tropical environments with temperatures in the range of 80 to 92 degrees Fahrenheit. So they like it hot. Uh, they're non-social, solitary creatures. They they ambush their prey, frequently waiting in trees. And that's going to be key when we start talking about their 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 length and weight, because 
obviously this creature has to crawl up into the, into the trees. It's not going to be just super heavy. It has to have a certain amount of, of lightness on its uh, on its side. They tend to feed on birds and mammals, and as far as the mammals go, the smaller ones, uh, the younger ones, are going to eat mostly rats. But as they grow, and they grow throughout their life, uh, they're going to shift to larger mammals. So porcupines, monkeys, wild pigs, mouse deer. Uh, now, like all reptiles, they have a low metabolic rate, which allows them to go without food for a long period of time. So it's not a situation where they're having to eat a monkey every day, but they score a monkey every once in a while, they're good, right? Um, again, the females grow the largest, and uh, they usually lay 25 to 80 or so eggs. Uh, and they'll so- they, 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 uh, they provide a certain amount of care and protection for the eggs until they hatch, and then once they hatch, they're on their own. Now... As far as how big these uh, these these gals get, field measurements in a 1999 survey averaged a little under 12 feet or 3.2 meters in the jungles of southern Sumatra, maxing out at just shy of 20 feet, 6.1 meters. Um, you'll find less reputable accounts that hit uh, the 33 and 40 foot mark, but we'll get to those shortly. For the most part, however, you're going to find the longer reported measurements with the reticulated. Now, uh, in the other corner here of the ring, we have Eunectes murinus. That Mm. is the green anaconda. And though it's not as long as a reticulated python, it is the uncontested heavyweight champion of the snake world. Um, According to the National Zoo, in captivity, they can grow to 29 feet long. They can weigh more than 550 pounds. And they can have a diameter of more than 12 inches. Now, most documented uh, instances of anacondas, weights are more in the 200 to 400 range and grow to about 20 feet in length. So well, we can say that this 29 feet long and the 550 is at the outer limits of its morphology. Now, they're a member of the boa family, and they can be found in swamps, marshes, and slow-moving streams in Trinidad, Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, northern Bolivia, northeastern Peru, and French Guiana. And uh, no surprise here, the anaconda is a great swimmer, super stealthy in the water, and part of that is because its weight is is um, being held up by the buoyancy of the water, right, mm-hmm. which allows it to go much faster. And it can remain underwater for up to 10 minutes at a time. So anacondas, like crocodiles, have eyes and nostrils that are designed to poke above the surface of the water. And that really helps them to, to uh, strike very quickly and efficiently. So on land... They're not so uh, elegant and, and stealthy, uh, but they can sidewind, and they use these large J-shaped coils to pull themselves along, which I think really speaks to how incredibly muscular they are. Now, they are non-venomous constrictors. They coil those those muscular bodies around captured prey, and they squeeze until the animal asphyxiates. They can unhinge their jaws to stretch their mouths around the prey, eating the carcass whole, and they have four rows of backwards-facing teeth on their upper jaws to help grab prey really fast and then swallow it whole. They dine on wild pigs, deer, birds, turtles, um, caimans, even jaguars, and on occasion, white-tailed deer, which can grow to be about 150 pounds or more in the wild, which makes you go, oh, 150 pounds, that's kind (laughs) of on par with humans, so... Would they go after a human? 
And uh, despite the premise of the show Eaten Alive, in which naturalist Paul Rosalie offers himself to be swallowed whole by an anaconda, there are no verified reports of anacondas ingesting a human being. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's going to be a harder kill to make, right? A harder ambush to pull off. Yeah. And are there a lot of humans around in their immediate environment? Um, now, when it comes to maximum sizes for both of these species, you might think it would be easy to just find a good ballpark figure about how big these these uh, these gals can get. Uh, but you, but you'd be wrong. And I found this out when I was uh, putting together an article for for how stuff works. Um, it, bega- it quickly becomes a game of like whose figures do you trust and whose fi- whose figures are they trusting? Um, and if you want a, a really thorough breakdown of the different accounts of maximum sizes for both the reticulated python and the green anaconda, um, I would uh, recommend you check out John C. Murphy's website on record snake sizes. I'll include a link to that on the page for this episode. Um, because uh, you, you, basically when it comes to these... Uh, these uh, reports of giant snakes, which themselves are rare occurrences in remote locations, often tended to by untrained individuals. You see local hearsay at times. You see second and third hand accounts. You see mere sightings where someone just saw the snake and they're giving you an estimation on how long they think it was. Um, certainly just exaggerated accounts, just sort of like the, I caught a fish this big situation. Yeah. And it grows with the telling, right? Questionable measurement techniques. In some cases, there'll be questions about, well, did you measure it from, you know, the, from snout to tail? Or are you dealing with a, with a decapitated body? Is this the hide? And if it is the hide, are you stretching it out when you're measuring it? And how are you measuring it? Are you just walking alongside it and doing paces? Are you using rods? Are you using measurement tape? Um, all these questions end up coming into play. Yeah, and I would imagine, too, that it's not like going to your vet and just dropping your dog on the scale, right? right. So if you're trying to weigh a snake, there's a lot more to it. I mean, in terms of trying to get a handle on this and then accurately weigh it. And again, these are encounters that are occurring often in, in remote locations, again, with with untrained individuals. Um I'm going to just roll through a couple of encounters that Murphy outlines on his website. Uh, one is an alleged 33-foot reticulated python uh, that was mentioned in a 1946 Natural History magazine story. And the, the story itself was about a 1912 sighting. And uh, as Murphy points out, this, this uh, stat, this 33-foot stat, continues to pop up in articles on giant snakes, uh, despite his continued efforts to try and, uh, and kill it. Um, here is what the author of the original 1946 piece, uh, Harry C. Raven, wrote, and you can tell us how uh, reputable it sounds. He says, I left the schooner and went inland a short distance to camp on the mountains, which were covered with virgin jungle. The white men at the mine told me of a huge python one of their relatives had killed a few days before my arrival and showed me a very poor photograph of it taken after it had been killed and dragged to camp. Though the print was dull, you could see a man standing on the huge body, which was about a foot thick. A civil engineer told me that it was just ten meters long. I asked him if he had had it, I asked him if he had paced off its length, but he said no. He had measured it with a surveying tape. So, here you see a number of factors, right? It was witnessed by other people, uh-huh. killed before he arrived, and as Murphy points out um, on his website, where do you get a photo developed that quickly in 1912, uh, Sulawesi? Okay, so photograph, hearsay, mm-hmm. uh, not sure of the methods entirely. Yeah, what yeah. could go wrong with that? I know, and still 
as he points out, you still see that that uh, that that length, uh, that record length showing up in various articles and wiki pages. Another record length uh, that uh, continued to uh, pop up throughout the later 20th century uh, came from uh, the Dunn Lehman record of a green anaconda. So the way this one broke down is in 1944, herpetologist Emmett Ray Reed Dunn published an article on the reptiles of Columbia, and it included a statement from his friend and geologist Robert Lehman, who was working in the area for an oil company. Lehman claimed to have killed and measured an 11.5-meter anaconda in eastern Columbia. Raymond Gilmore of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, later investigated this record in 1954, and the results were less encouraging. Uh, Lehman later stated in a, in a letter about his uh, encounter with the snake. He says, if memory serves me right, it required almost three lengths of the rod to obtain the dimensions. But I could not swear to this in that it may have just been almost two lengths of the rod. So, again, you see somebody's uh, sort of faint recollection mm-hmm. of how it went down in a remote location uh, dealing with uh, an endeavor outside of his field of expertise. Using a rod as a measurement. Yeah, for a dead snake. So so hopefully this helps to illustrate just a little bit of the, the problems you get into when you're dealing with these, these often old accounts of particularly large specimens. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to venture into the Cerejon rainforest. All right, we're back. All right, Julie, let's jump into the time machine. Take us back to the, uh, to hopefully safely, to the Cerrojón rainforest. Well, the Cerrojón rainforest once hosted the largest snake that ever existed, or that we know about so far. And the reason why we know that is because 60 million-year-old fossils of the Titan Boa Cerrojónis were discovered in a Colombian coal mine by paleontologists led by Jonathan Block of the University of Florida and Carlos Yaramillo of the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. So what we're talking about here, and we won't go into too many specifics right now, but we're talking about a snake that was longer than a great white and bigger than a hippo. Now, the Titan Boa was sustained by a neotropical rainforest that would have come into existence in the Paleocene epoch shortly after the extinction of dinosaurs. But according to Scott Wing, a a paleontologist from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, the rainforest had a really low plant diversity. And he chalks this up to, well, it could either be because of a new type of plant community that still hadn't had time to diversify, or it was still recovering from the events that caused the mass extinction of dinosaurs 65 million years ago. But of course, even though this was a huge creature, that does not mean that it didn't have competition because in 2011, University of Florida researchers discovered the fossils of a 20-foot extinct species in that same Colombian coal mine. And this is a uh, freshwater relative to modern crocodiles. It is the first known land animal from Pelocene New World Tropics specialized for eating fish, meaning that it competed with Titan Boa for food, and it's the second crocodiliform that was found in the same cave. But, of course, the, the other one was the diet was more generalized, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't have been competing with the Titan Boa. So although this 20-foot-long relative to the croc would have been really formidable, 
it's it's a much smaller and more vulnerable offspring probably would have shown up on Titan Boa's dinner plate. Yeah, they were kind of co-apex predators in this uh, this really steamy, uh, dangerous world, uh, tropical environment full of car-sized turtles on one hand and then 20-foot uh, hell crocs on the other. And I say hell crocs because they named the species after one of the uh, rivers in Dante's Inferno. Uh, but then the, the, the Titanoboa itself, uh, paleontologists estimate its t- tip-to-tail length came in at a whopping 42 feet or 13 meters, and it weighed more than a ton. Um, it would have looked something like a modern-day boa constrictor, but it would have behaved more like the water-dwelling anaconda that we uh, described in the, f- in the first half of this episode. So, mm-hmm. again, its, it's massive weight is, uh, d- is, uh, is supported by the buoyancy of the water, and it's using that as a means to ambush its prey. Now, paleontologists really kind of hit the jackpot in actually discovering fossil evidence of the titanoboa uh, because, for, for one thing, you, it, it, as we've discussed before, the, the whole fossil game is kind of a game of chance in some uh, right. respects. You know, are the conditions going to be just right for the preservation of uh, of the fossils so that we can actually get a glimpse of what uh, what kind of skeletons these creatures in uh, the primordial age had? Well, in this case, they got really fortunate because they found an entire skull, uh, which is which is almost unheard of—an entire snake skull, the entire Titanoboa skull, uh, not broken into pieces, but just com- completely contained there, preserved in the shale mud uh, of this environment. And then they were able to uh, collect some vertebrae as well. And then by comparing the size of the uh, preserved uh, vertebrae fossils with the vertebrae of existing large snakes, mm-hmm. they were able to extrapolate just how large it would have been. So again, 42 feet long, more than a ton. Virtually the, the the king and or queen of the uh, of the environment there uh, unrivaled once it reached its adult form. Yeah, and consider this: in order to eat its prey whole, Titanboa had jaw bones that snapped apart and flexible ligaments for opening its mouth up almost 180 degrees. Which led some very clever people at the Smithsonian Channel <laughs> to wonder, because by the way, the Smithsonian Channel has a, a documentary on the Titan Boa, but it made them wonder, T-Rex versus Titan Boa, who would come uh. out on top? And that's because the T-Rex, as we know, has a ferocious bite, a mm-hmm. bite force that's twice um, of, of a great white. Hmm. I guess, I mean, it comes down to who has the home turf, I guess. And which one is using the time machine, obviously. Right, because they didn't exist at the same time. But it's it's kind of fun to think about. Yeah. I think it goes down in a like a B-movie kind of way where time travelers go back to check out uh, the Titanoboa. They get eaten. Titanoboa climbs into the time machine. Yeah. Accidentally knocks the controls. And then it travels through time battling various creatures. That sounds uh, oddly like the next alien uh, movie in the franchise, perhaps. Yeah. 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 I say bring it on. Yeah. All right. So how could it have gotten so big? We don't know exactly, of course. And uh, by the way, prehistoric largesse is not exclusive to the Titan Boa. For instance, the plant-eating Argentinosaurus is thought to have measured more than 100 feet long and weighed over 100 tons. And the ground sloth was the size of today's Elephant. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, can you imagine? I, I I love to imagine it. We have a one of those uh, giant sloth replicas at uh, the local Fernbank Museum here in Atlanta, and every time I get to look at it, I'm just like, ah, oh, what would it be like to 
smell this creature in real life. And I always think of like it, it looks like a rejected mu- Muppet character to me, and I love it. It's got that what looks to be a smile. All right, so one idea for the largesse is that when the ice ages occurred, warm-blooded animals increased in size to retain heat. Cold-blooded ones favored large bodies in warmer climates Mm -hmm. to better insulate them from overheating. And as we see with the Titan Boa, it was living in a neotropical rainforest, so that would have made sense. Another theory requires that we look to the dinosaurs living in the Cretaceous period. Carbon dioxide was a lot more prevalent than today, and as a result, the temperature was much higher, and some areas of the world were carpeted by vegetation. So what does this mean? It means that uh, it's a kind of all-you-can-eat buffet. Um, and the limits of morphology at that time could have been expanding because it's no longer a game of, okay, over time, in evolutionary terms, the morphology of these creatures has to shrink so that they require less food and less energy. Nope, there's plenty of it for everyone. It's a buffet. Yeah, indeed. When we're looking at the size of Titanoboa or the green anaconda or the reticulated python, uh, the maximum size has everything to do with uh, ambient environmental temperature, metabolic rate, and how much stuff is there for them to eat. And if you travel back to a steamier time uh, with a little more biomass around, you're going to get bigger snakes, apparently. A steamier time. That sounds yeah. like a um, romance bustier buster. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, you know, the... Um, Adam, Eve, snake, it's all there, right? Yeah. And snake charmers. Ooh. Yeah. This doesn't have to do with the world's largest snake, but we thought we would roll this out for you. If you live in, you know, South Asia and you're a snake charmer, you want a king cobra. So although they can hear, they are actually deaf to ambient noises that the flute would make, right? Okay. So when you see them responding to the snake charmer, it is really just to the flute, to the movement to the flute. And the snake charmer is actually keeping a beat with his foot on the ground, Mm -hmm. and so they're also using those cues to move around. Huh. So it has nothing really to do with the music of the flute, just the shape of the flute, the Mm -hmm. movement of the flute, and the sound of the the thumping on the ground. Yeah, the music isn't that enthralling. Uh, all right, you know, we got a few minutes here. Let's call over the robot and do a little listener mail. All right, uh, we received a great bit of listener mail from listener Stefan, who is a certified neurological music therapist. Uh, but he had an interesting account of, of uh, sleep paralysis to share it with, which, as we've discussed in the past, uh, sleep paralysis is, you know, when you're, um, you're, uh, you're waking up or your body's still on lockdown from dreaming. And uh, you're kind of you're in this state in between that's really prone to hallucination. Uh, he says, um, periodically since I was 18, I've experienced sleep paralysis, which uh, you mentioned uh, on the podcast. However, I've come to learn how to control it. I have had many different hallucinatory experiences, including doors swinging open, evil presences, strong winds entering the bedroom, etc., but none compared to the tipping point. In the summer of 2006, I returned home in the summer after my sleep paralysis riddled freshman year at college. I was taking a nap with my then-girlfriend when I... when I became conscious and could not move. Here we go, I thought to myself as the hallucinatory experience began. 
completely black demons with glowing yellow eyes entered the room and surrounded the bed. I threw myself out of the bed only to be lifted into the air by invisible forces and thrown back into the bed like an apple core being tossed out of a car window on the freeway. The demons began sinking me into the bed as I was forced to suffocate my own girlfriend at the same time. I began shouting, wake up, wake up, to my girlfriend, hoping that she could wake up and stop the nightmare. I threw myself out of the bed several more times, only to float higher above the bed and sink deeper when thrown back down. I came within what felt like inches up to death as I sunk deeper and deeper into the mattress. Eventually, I closed my eyes and awoke from my nightmare. I asked my girlfriend if she had heard me screaming or moving or anything, and she told me, no. At this point, knowing nothing of sleep paralysis, I actually thought I was possessed. Immediately, I went to the computer and began researching and quickly found out that I was experiencing sleep paralysis, typically induced in periods of transition in life stress, moving to college being one, of course. I was comforted. I had been fascinated with possession in high school and had many debates with my religious friends on the concepts of demons and exorcism, so this experience was already hiding somewhere in my subconscious. Therefore, when I woke up and couldn't move, I became frightened. And uh, and because I was frightened, still in REM sleep, my hallucinatory experiences were frightening in nature. As time went on, I continued to experience sleep paralysis, but I was no longer scared of the experience, and I learned how to control my hallucinations. Thank you for reading, and hopefully this story will help someone who may be experiencing the terror that is sleep paralysis. Have a wonderful weekend. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It is terrifying. Yeah. Have you had it before? I have not had it, but I've, I've read enough accounts of it, and uh, certainly Oliver Sacks uh, goes into it uh, at depth in his book, Hallucinations. And, uh, yeah, even if you only experience one case of it in mm-hmm. your life, and, uh, and, and statistics vary. I, statistics, I think, go as high as uh, 60% of people have experienced at least one case. Yeah, I've had it throughout mm-hmm. my life, uh, yeah. pretty sparsely um, in the last 10 years. But my husband has been a little bit freaked out before because he said that I was completely still once. But I was going... Oh. I wasn't opening my mouth or anything, uh-huh. but he could hear sound being made inside oh. of my mouth. And in my dream, I was full-on screaming with my mouth open. But. Wow. Uh, yeah, it can, it can be a little unsettling. All right, we have another listener email here from Brent. He says, hello, I'm a very big fan. You guys do a wonderful job explaining the topic you take on in your podcast. I was listening to your podcast on hallucinations. My family suffer from sleepwalking. As far back as I have been able to track my family, particularly the males, have had sleepwalking issues. As I have aged now 60, my sleepwalking frequently has decreased to very seldom, but my son, who is 30, still sleepwalks every night. I've had episodes of sleepwalking that are remember struggling with what I was seeing and what my mind is telling me I should be seeing. When I'm sleepwalking, I see everything and everyone that I would if I was awake, except my mind creates more images and or smells, textures, and sounds. I could write a book about my sleepwalking experiences. My understanding is the mind is lost between normal sleeping mode and awake mode, allowing the brain to create the show normally done when asleep, but allowing the person to talk and respond to people and things around them. The person's eyes are open and can carry on conversation with people. Would like to hear what you can tell me about this. And I've gotten my cue, and it's been in there for a while. I need to get to it. I believe it's called Sleepwalk With Me. Mm-hmm. And this is the account of a guy who has had some like extreme sleepwalking 
um, situations throughout his life where he actually has to sleep to uh, zip himself up into a sleeping bag to oh, wow. try to prevent him from escaping. <laughs> yeah, that's that's some extreme uh, parasomnia for sure. All right, let's do one last listener mail. This comes to us from Benjamin. Benjamin says, Hi, Stuff to Blow Your Mind crew. I'm a relatively new listener coming to your podcast from other How Stuff Works podcasts, and I love it already. I recently listened to your episode, Could You Outrun a Fireball, which was great as always, but covered the possibility of outrunning wildfire or explosion. I will admit reading the title, I had imagined a slightly different subject. Rather than explosions or wildfire, outrunning an actual ball of fire, or more precisely, plasma. Early in my life, I worked as an electronics technician aboard a warship in the U.S. Navy. In the course of my work, I periodically had to work in the vicinity of energized gear, live bus bars carrying extremely high voltage and high current. Since operation since operation is key for a warship, we do not always have the luxury of turning off the power to conduct repairs or maintenance. My crew always took ample precautions for this, but Navy ghost stories were common about the dreaded plasma ball. As the story goes, a worker near one of these high-voltage panels accidentally dropped a large wrench, which touched two of the bus bars and caused a short. At voltages this high, the arc vaporized the middle of the two-inch thick steel wrench and created a cloud of superheated metal particles, a plasma ball. Not only are these things extraordinarily dangerous, as they are in order of magnitude hotter than any normal fire, as the story goes, it chased a man as he ran for his life. The explanation they give is that when you run, it creates an eddy current, or an area of lower pressure behind you Hmm. that the floating ball of plasma is drawn into. Though this cautionary tale has a rather gruesome end, I thought it would make for a great follow-up topic about fireballs. I cannot vouch for the scientific accuracy of the claim, as it is just a story passed around, but the exclamation seems plausible to me. I would love to hear your take on it. Thanks, and keep up the great show. Ben from Virginia. Well, that sounds fascinating. I would love to look into the... uh into, into the possible existence of uh, of plasma balls abo- aboard Navy vessels. Yeah, plasma balls. Yeah. I mean, sheesh. Chasing down unfortunate sa- uh, sailors and burning them to embers. I love it. You love the idea of the plasma balls. I love the balls. idea. Not, yeah, not the not our burning of the sailors. And right. Burning a lot. Yeah. But yeah. I love the, yeah, the idea of the plasma ball. All right. Hey, uh, in the meantime, if uh, you want to see what other episodes we've covered, blog posts, videos, links out to social media, what have you, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That is, uh, that's the homepage. And if you have thoughts, we want to hear them. You can send them to us by emailing us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 